All right, well, hey, good morning. Hey, it's good to see you guys. Hey, my name is Seth. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Salem. And uh, if you're a guest, special welcome to you guys. If you guys have been here for a long time, special welcome to you. If you guys are online, special welcome to you guys as well. So we're so thankful you guys are joining us. Uh, this morning is the start of Advent. We'll kind of get that, uh, get to that at the end as we're really moving towards this idea of hope in which you'll see uh, this morning. And so, uh, but this morning we are diving back into uh, the Gospel of Mark uh, as we will be for a while. So if you're following along in your companion guides, we're on page 68. Uh, it's Mark 5, 21. So if you've got, uh, if you don't have one of these and if you're new and you want one, raise your hand and one of the ushers will bring that to you. We've got some extras. So uh, while you're turning there though, I want you to imagine with me for a moment, you are in first century Israel, Galilee to be precise, somewhere along the western side, the western edge of the Sea of Galilee. It's the home of the Jewish people. The eastern side are the pagans. The western side are the Jewish people. We're in a city. Maybe we're in Capernaum, which is otherwise known as Capernaum, Nathan's village. Maybe we're there. Maybe we're somewhere a little bit further around uh, the western side. We don't know exactly for sure. But if you were to peek your head, if you were to get a glimpse into this home, homes back then weren't that big. They're not in any way, shape, or form close to the homes that we live in today. It's a small, kind of squarish building with a few rooms inside. And for those of them who are more wealthy, they might have a little bit bigger, but space was limited in those days. And so if you were to get a peek into this house, though, if you came alongside, you might hear a weeping from inside of the home. And if they would let you in, which, you know, maybe you just kind of picture yourself kind of walking in, and that'd be pretty rude, I guess, but you just walk in, you hear, you follow through, and in the center is a, is a family room, but as you look off the side, one of the small rooms, and you peek in, you see a dad and a mom. We don't know if they're siblings, but maybe it's just the one little girl. And the dad is kneeling beside the bed, his knees on the ground and his elbows on the bed and it's just a sobbing and a weeping. You see, we don't know the process that's led us to this point. Maybe it's been days. Maybe it was really sudden. Maybe it's been weeks. Maybe it's been months. Maybe it has been years leading up to this moment. But what we know is that there is a little girl on this bed who is at the point of death. And so mom and dad are are weeping probably in the room. Can you imagine? In a world with different, much, much more rudimentary medicine, right? Much, much less in that realm. And so here they are. They probably tried everything, weeping. And as the dad finally looks up and as tears have been coming down his cheeks and he looks at his wife and his wife nods at him, the father, the dad realizes in this moment that he needs to leave because they've tried everything, but there's one thing that they have yet to try. And so what does he do? Maybe he, he stands up and I just picture him looking at his daughter with all of the tears in his eyes and as he bends over. And it doesn't matter how much sweat is on her forehead, he leans down and and he kisses her on the forehead. 
and shows his love to her maybe for one last time because as he, as he gets up and as he goes out the door and as he looks back one last time and he sees his daughter maybe realizing that if I leave right now, this might be the last time I see my daughter alive because that's where she's at. She's at the point of death. But there's one thing that they haven't tried. That's Jesus. And so he leaves and he walks out the door. Because there are many things in life that bring us, many circumstances in life that bring us to a point where we realize like how broken the world really is. And we realize how desperate we are as people when everything else has failed and everything else is gone and our wallets have been expended and doctors have no more answers, right? We realize just how broken and messed up and fallen this world really is. But I also want you to know this morning that it's not just circumstances that force us to see desperation. And here's what I hope that you see this morning is that desperation is a daily thing. Desperation is a daily thing and it happens for every single one of us people. Desperation is daily. And so we're going to dive, dive in as we get to look at the gospel. And the question that we're going to ask in the midst of this is how, if desperation is a daily thing, then, then how does the gospel and how does Jesus actually fit into that desperation? Because here's the reality. I think, and, and maybe this is true, uh, more true in some cases than others, but I think it's true that the degree in, to which we experience hope in this life is tied to the degree in which we understand our need for Jesus, our desperation. And we're going to find some people who are desperate for Jesus. Check this out in chapter 5, verse 21. It says, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side. Now, if you stop there and if you pause and you say, man, it feels like we're jumping into the story, it might be because we are. We are in week 14 of a series in Mark, and we're just in chapter 5. Buckle up. We're going. Good pastor might like, like, uh, focus on Advent holistically. We did that last year. This year, we're going, okay? The Gospel of Mark, right? We're in week 14, and we've been tracking since the very beginning. We've been tracking the authority of Jesus because Jesus as the creator, right? All of a sudden, we find Jesus incarnate. That's what we're celebrating in Advent. We're coming to the birth of Jesus, the Word made flesh, co-divine, co-equal, co-God, He's a part of the Trinity, and here he is. He comes in baby form. We're going there. But Mark skips that part, and he goes right to the ministry of Jesus, and we're tracking the authority Jesus as the rightful king of the earth and of the kingdom that he is building, and all of this starts on the west side of the Sea of Galilee because that's where the Jews live, and so that's where Jesus starts, because the Messiah is part of the Old Testament prophecy, and so as Jesus' ministry begins to grow, the crowds begin to gather around him, and his famedom, his popularity grows, which, by the way, that's not really what he's, he's after. That's not what he wants. It's just a natural consequence of the life that he lived in the broken world. In fact, one of the parables that Jesus uses just several weeks ago that we looked at is about the parable of the mustard seed, right? In this little jar, you can come take a look at it later, is a tiny little mustard seed from Israel. It's like a third of the size of a BB, and yet what Jesus says is that it grows into the biggest of things. Now, it's not going to grow into this big, giant sequoia tree if you plant this in your backyard and like have the tallest thing in all of Fargo. <laughs> um, no, like you plant this, and what's going to happen is it's just going to invade in all over the place, because that's what mustard does. It grows, and 
and it invades. It's an invasive type of thing. And so what Jesus is talking about, he's like, hey, as I become king of this kingdom that I'm building, guess what? It's going to grow. It's going to start tiny, but it's going to get massive. Over and over and over, this is going to grow. All right? And so they start on the west side, but then all of a sudden, Jesus is like, hey, disciples, we're going to go to the east side, to the other side. Now, the other side is pretty common language in the scriptures. And so it's common that Jesus oftentimes get in a boat. The fastest form of transportation in the Sea of Galilee was by boat. And so instead of walking all the way around by days, they would get in a boat and go and cut across the corner. And so when Jesus says, go to the other side, he usually means, let's go up to Bethsaida in the north. Let's go to Tiberias in the southwest. And so when Jesus says, let's go to the other side, the disciples are like, okay, let's go. They get in a boat, but as they go, a storm comes. It's so big that the waves in a moment, because of the location and this, this, this bowl-shaped thing and winds, waves can go up to 15 feet. Do you think that's terrifying? Absolutely. And so all the disciples are like looking at Jesus who's sleeping in the bottom. And they're like, Jesus, don't you care? And his fear takes over the disciples. They are terrified. And Jesus is like, calm down. Calm down. My disciples, watch this. Calm down. Psh. Calm down. All of a sudden, the boat gets to the other side. And Peter, I just imagine Peter taking his foot and getting out of the boat. And as about as he's put to put his foot down, he realizes he's not where he thinks that he is. Jesus, I thought you said we were going to the other side. Jesus is like, we are. We're on the pagan side. Mm-mm. No, I ain't going. Jesus, there's pigs. They're dirty and they're scary. They eat things. <laughs> Jesus is like, come on, guys. Text doesn't tell us if they get out of the boat or not, but here's what we do know. This man who's demon-possessed comes running down the hill. It says that his name is Legion. You know what a legion is? A legion is a group of soldiers in the Roman army, 6,000 strong. That's terrifying. So here's this man, and I just look at Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the disciples. They see that coming down. They're like, mm-mm, I ain't getting out of this boat. And Jesus deals with everything here, and they kick them out, and they go back, and so all of a sudden, right, there's fear. You see, here's what's happening. As the kingdom of Jesus is growing, and as his, and his authority is expanding, what Mark is beginning to do in these last passages, and will continue to do for a little bit, is he begins to unpack fear, because as the kingdom grows, we're going to experience the fear side of the disciples and the characters, because all of a sudden, we are faced with a reality that's much deeper and darker and harder than we ever thought we would consider when we were started following Jesus in the first place. And so fear begins to come out, and you go, why is that a big deal? Because fear, guys, is a powerful motivator. We've been in this series in Mark. This is 14 weeks, and we have a choice. Do we either follow from a distance or do we follow from up close? Because it's easy for us when life gets hard with Jesus to say, Jesus, I'll see you when you get back to the west side on the more comfortable side. Right? That's the way Jesus is. So Jesus comes back. Here's where we pick up, right? We're catching, caught you back up 14 weeks worth right now. Here we go. Verse 21, they crossed again in the boat to the other side. So they are back on the west side. A great, great crowd gathers about him, and he was beside the sea, right? This isn't atypical for Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus. Everybody wants to come see Jesus. Right? I just kind of imagine Jesus gets back from the other side, and it's kind of like, like the paparazzi. 
Like how many of you are that popular? Nobody, none of us are. Like Jesus gets back and all of a sudden this great crowd comes together and it's like, like pre-cell phone days, you know? So they're like capturing these mental pictures. Like I got to experience Jesus. I'm going to post that on my Instagram. You know, whatever it is, like all of a sudden we go, like I just want to be a part of this. I want to see Jesus in person. And so you kind of imagine this big, massive crowd and people running around the outsides, and, and they're like, hey, can, can you see him? Can you find him? Look, hey, I actually can see him over here. Come over here. And so they come over. Oh, no, he's gone. You know, like it's just the paparazzi. It's this great crowd. Everybody's there to see Jesus. But then came, verse 22, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come, please, and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. You see, you see Jairus coming from down the street, and you go, uh-oh, somebody's in trouble. Jairus is the religious leader. What's he going to do? Is he going to come yell at Jesus, or are you going to stand in the back and judge him? Because as a leader, he is dignified. He's got all the right clothes. He's got everything that he needs. He's got the nice house. He's got the extra rooms in his house, which most people don't have, right? He's got everything that he needs, the nice robes, and yet he's not coming as a leader to see Jesus. Mm -mm. He's not a religious leader today. Today, he's a religious dad. Today, he is a dad who has nowhere else to turn other than Jesus, because he's got nothing else that he can do, and his 12-year-old daughter is lying on a bed close to death. And so as a leader, guys, here's the deal. Jairus is probably opposed to many things Jesus said, but as a dad, Jesus is all he's got. It's a big deal. It's a big deal in this moment. This man Despite all of his religion, despite all of his best efforts, this man was desperate. He's desperate. Little does he know, and little does anybody else in the crowd know, that that same day as Jairus exited his home, a woman of a much different class exited her space. We don't know if she was in a home. We don't know if she was homeless. Here's what we know is that for 12 years, she's suffered with an ailment in her body. It has caused her to be perpetually unclean. She's probably unmarried, has no kids, and probably lives alone. Maybe at best, she lives tucked away in the corner in her parents' house because if she touches anything, it becomes unclean, including her parents. And so for very similar reasons, she exits a door, and these stories are going to collide right around Jesus, and both of these people are looking for the healing touch of Jesus. Everything else has failed. They are desperate, and their only hope is Jesus. It's the only thing. And so they gravitate to Jesus. Here we go, 24a. Right, so Jesus obviously has gone with the man. And it says, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Here's a question. When was the last time you ever used the word thronged? That's such a weird word. I had to look it up, you know, in English, and then I looked it up in the Greek, obviously. Here's what it means in Greek. It means collision. It means people colliding. It's like it bring, brings whole new meaning. This crowd brings whole new meaning to the song, head, shoulders, knees, and toes, all your body parts colliding together, 
collision. It's people clamoring to get to Jesus, right? Over and over and over, they're fighting to get in. This crowd is not just a great crowd. And what is a great crowd? I don't know. Is it, is it five? Probably not. Is it 50? Maybe. Is it 500? Who knows? It's a bunch of people who are thronging. That's a weird word. It's a bunch of people who are colliding around Jesus. They're colliding, right? But all of a sudden, enter in the woman. Look at verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. You see, here's the problem with this woman, and we've already mentioned it, but here's the problem. She is unclean. Let me ask you a question. What happens when something that's unclean touches something that's clean? Becomes unclean, right? Okay, I was thinking of different examples that I could think of. When I was growing up, my, my family, my mom always taught me that in order to wash dishes, you fill the sink with water and you put some soap in there and it's hot, right? But then every time, like, mom would say, hey, come do dishes. I'd be like, mm-mm, mm-mm. Mm-mm. And my mom was like, she's like, maybe he doesn't love me. That ain't it. I love my mom. Here's what I don't love. I don't love getting in their dishes. Your first three dishes are good, but by dish 10, guess what? There's lettuce and hamburger and like weird gross things like floating at the top. And you're like, you, you pick up your screen, you're like, the water starts to get lukewarm. You're like, yeah, there's no way this is washing anything. Mm-mm. You know, like you get down and you pull it up and you look and your sponge, you little did you know the last 10 dishes that you washed, there's been a piece of hamburger just sticking out of the sponge. And you're like, scrum, scrub, scrub, scrum, you know? Like, and then you rinse it off. You go, man, it looks clean. I'm like, mm-mm, that ain't clean. You put that on the side. Anything that that touches is now unclean. Here's how I do it. You take a nice little slow drip of water so you don't waste it. A little bit, scrub, rinse, scrub, rinse. And you do that. That way I know that they're clean. Or I put them in the dishwasher and I know for sure extra hot. Because I don't like dirty dishes. It's gross. When something that's unclean touches something that's clean, here's how it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You take a dirty dish, you touch a clean dish, and all of a sudden you take your dirty dish and go, oh, it's clean. That ain't how it works. Dirty makes other things dirty. And that's what this woman is dealing with. You go back into the Old Testament, you find in chapter 15 of Leviticus, it's a long book. Go back and read it for yourself. I'm not reading it this morning. But here's the deal. You go back and read it. It's a whole chapter on blood. You're like, why in the world did they put a whole, why does God have a whole chapter about blood in the Old Testament? Good question, because 5,000 plus years later, whenever it was, scientists would discover that when blood comes out of your body, it's not good. It carries lots of bacteria and bad things. That's why medicine people, right? Medicine people, what? Right? <laughs> they glove up, right? You glove up and you, and you touch it because it's dangerous. And so God's like, see, you're welcome. That's why it's in Leviticus 15. You see, blood is a bad thing. So here's what I want you to know is that here's, a, here's this woman who's been physically separated for 12 years. 12 years. Not only is she probably physically separated, she's probably now emotionally separated from people. She's got no friends, socially, mentally maybe, and most especially, here's the dangerous thing, she's separated spiritually. You want to know why? Because where do you go to take care of your sin? To the temple. What do you need to do in order to go to the temple to offer sacrifice? You gotta be clean. 
And if you're perpetually unclean, if there's nothing you can do about it, what do you do? This woman is figuratively up a creek without a paddle. She's got nothing. What do you do? Now, the Talmud at the time, which is another thing of a Jewish, kind of a secondary Jewish book, it lists no less than 11 different cures for this woman, for a person like this. Let me read you three. First one is this. It says, take the gum of Alexandria. That's down in Egypt, right? Uh, the weight of a small silver coin of alum the same and then of crocus the same as well. So you take these three things and then you bruise them together. So it's like you mold them together and then you put it in wine and then you have the woman drink it. Okay, that's the first one. Sounds reasonable. I mean, I don't know what those things are, but it sounds reasonable. Second thing, if that doesn't work, or if that doesn't benefit the person, then here's what you do. Take of Persian onions, three different ones. Three different ones. You boil them in wine, and then you give her the boiled onion wine juice. Sounds yummy, right? And then as she drinks it, though, here's what you say. You say, arise from the flux. What does that mean? I have no clue. But that's what you say. Arise from the flux. It's starting to get more desperate. Here's the third one. If that does not work, then set her in a place where two ways meet. I don't know, you find a street where two streets come together, I guess. And then you have her hold a cup of wine in her right hand and let someone come up from behind her and frighten her and say, arise from thy flux, as if that would scare the blood disease away. And like, man, What? Like it becomes more and more desperate as you go down the list. This woman has tried all of them. What comes next? Do you say, spin around, hop on one foot, spinning three times, chanting the Shema, and if that doesn't work, throw in a backflip? Oh, and all the, all the while, make sure you're holding a glass of wine in your right hand, not your left. You see, like it just gets more and more desperate. And you go, man, can you imagine what this woman has been through? Sympathy is a word that we use to describe when we put ourselves into the feet of someone else. Put yourself into the shoes of this woman. Twelve years. She is lonely. She's separated emotionally, mentally, socially, physically, and even spiritually. She can't even go to the temple and you're like, what does this woman do? Everywhere she goes, she would be unclean. Part of that is that if anybody touches her, then they become unclean. So by law, when she walked through town, anywhere she went, if someone was about to come and give her a high five intentionally or accidentally touch her, you had to step away and declare yourself unclean. So you imagine walking into the market unclean, 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 and people part in front of you. Can you imagine the isolation? And the desperation in this woman. How does she even buy groceries? Well, you go to the market and you say, I can't touch the fruit from you, and so just put it in a bag and hand it to me. Well, then how do you hand them the money? Because you touch the coin. Well, you wrap it in a cloth. Well, but you touch the coin. The, touch, the coin touches the cloth. The cloth touches them. You see what I'm saying? Right, if you think about this, you go, gosh, like how difficult is this? How does she even work? Like how does she even earn money? Right? Does she sit in the back of wherever she lives and just knits and then sends it to people? Hey, I love you. Merry Christmas. Not that they would say that, but Merry Christmas. Here's a gift. Make sure you wash it first. How do you do that? 12 years. This woman, 
was desperate. So you got a man, a religious dad, and an outcast woman. And they're both incredibly, incredibly desperate. Look at verse 27. Here's how it goes on. It says, but she had heard. Guess what? (laughs) She had heard the reports about who? Jesus, right? He's heard, she's heard the reports about Jesus, and here's what she does. She decides to put on her camo clothes, which is really just normal clothes. So she comes, and she weasels her way in from behind Jesus. She sneaks up from behind him, and she reaches out to touch his cloak. Because in the back of her mind, which is, by the way, this is bad theology, but she thinks, gosh, I have very little to lose. So if I can just touch his garments, then I will be made well. And so she sneaks up from behind him, and as she reaches, and as she grabs in this momentary thing, think about the desperation in her life, 12 years of life that has been spent with this ailment. She has no friends, no husband, no kids, no anything, most likely, and she's reaching for this garment in all of the desperation that is there, and yet she's not hopeless. Why? Because she has hope that maybe, maybe, just maybe, she can be healed by Jesus. And so it's in that moment that she touches and grasps and holds on to whatever part of the cloak that is. The text says, and immediately she felt her entire body healed. Oh, clap for that, you know? Like that, yeah, there you go, right? It's just incredible, 12 years of her life, and all of a sudden in this moment, she's like, she can feel it. And she's ecstatic in this moment. If you ever get the chance to go to Israel, there's a, there's a mural that, that captures this moment. Oh, it's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. You don't get to see the face of this woman. By the way, you've got Jairus, who's named because he's a religious elite. He's the synagogue ruler. Do you have a name for this woman? No. And yet, who do we capture? Look at this. It's like she's got her hand out. She's about to touch. Now, this isn't normally how it works, but it's like she reaches out and about there, and it's in that moment as she is healed. I want you just to imagine what she would feel and the release in her body as her ailment goes away, right? There's this incredible sensation that my life has been made new and only by Jesus. In fact, all of the money that she has spent on doctors and physicians had only made her worse, much, much worse. And she gets to Jesus, and mm, there's healing, and it's beautiful. So as we come back to, as we come back to this, right, we started, started with the story of the religious dad, but we come back to him in the end, because here's the deal, right? Um, this title for the sermon is called The Urgent and the Inconvenient, because here's what happened. God is, Jesus is on his way to go visit this young, this guy's daughter, Jairus' daughter, but yet at the same time, he is confronted with something that is urgent and inconvenient. And it's how Jesus responds, Right? And so if you remember, the woman says, if I just what? If I just touch his garments. We've been tracking this word through the Gospel of Mark. It's the word utheos, right? It's the adverb, right? And it talks about how God's kingdom, right, the immediate use or the immediate sense in which when something happens, there's a, there's a way in which the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth are blending and Jesus is becoming king of the kingdom and something is happening. And so in this case, it says that she was immediately what? Healed. And you go, man, 12 years. How incredibly cool is that 12 years? 
Think of how much life she has to make up for, right? How, how much you, as she would back away in that moment, she's like, man, 12 years, guess what? I get to go home and I can have a date. I can finally ask that guy or talk to that guy that I've always wanted to, but I couldn't because I was unclean. I can give my mom and dad a hug. <laughs> Think about how simple that is. It's beautiful. She's healed, and yet then the text changes, and it says immediately, oh boy, what happens? Jesus, it says immediately, Jesus perceiving in himself asked this question, who touched me? Who touched me? And in this moment, the story comes to a breaking halt. Who touched me? Who touched me? And as you think about it in this moment, right, like the disciples, they think this is a ridiculous question because if you're Peter, James, and John, most likely they're right next to Jesus because they're like the guys and so they want to be there. And Peter, James, and John are like, Jesus, what do you mean? Who touched me? Do you not realize that 2,000 years from now when they record this in the Bible, they're going to describe this as thronging, <laughs> right? People are colliding around you. That's how it's going to be recorded. What do you mean who touched you? John's touching my knee right now. He's like, no, oh, sorry, Peter. You know, like you start to think about it. Bartholomew, he's claustrophobic. He's off to the side and he's like, Jesus, I can't see anything so I can confirm. I have no idea who touched you, but I don't like crowds. Sorry, I'm over here. Like, who knows? He's like, who touched me? And Jesus is adamant in this moment. This thronging crowd comes to a halt. And as the woman hears these words, I'm guessing that she probably freezes. And his seer, fear begins to surge into her body because all eyes are on Jesus as he asks this question. But she knows if she becomes a spotlight, all eyes will be on her. Everyone will be looking at her. Guys, this is an unclean woman. Everything that you touch is unclean. And yet, what did she do? She thronged her way through a thronging community of people around Jesus. Head, shoulders, knees, and toes. Everybody she touches has now become unclean. Fear, guilt. Gosh, look what I did. I had all the people I put at risk just so I could have what I wanted, so I could have what I needed. And I just picture in this moment, maybe this woman, she's wrestling with all this fear. What does she do? You see, she has the option to continue to back out of the crowd. I can just keep doing this, keep sneaking my way back behind Jesus. I got 12 years of life to make up for. I can go on that day. I can hug my mom. I can high five my little cousin. I can buy fruit for the first time. I got a lot of living to do. I can back away and I can follow Jesus from a distance. Now he may have never know in person, but in my mind and in my heart, I might say, thank you, Jesus. But I have a choice in this moment. Do I go backwards and away from Jesus? Do I follow from a distance or do I come forward and do I follow from up close? Think about that. Here's what happens. Verse 33. It says, but the woman, 
knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Oh man, this woman comes before Jesus. All the eyes that were on Jesus are now on her. The entire thronging crowd of however many hundreds of people are looking at this woman, this dirty, unclean, inconsiderate, filthy woman who's put everyone at risk for her own benefit. And so as she tells Jesus the whole truth, she lays out the story from 12 years ago to now, and she lays out her guilt. She lays out her shame. And I get this picture that in that moment, it's like a person before a cop who knows that the guilty, and they just say, cuff me. Just cuff me. I don't know what she's expecting to hear from Jesus in this moment. But look at this in verse 34. Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. See, you look at that, you go, ah, guys, I had no idea what she was expecting here in that moment, but I can almost guarantee you that it wasn't the word daughter. I didn't know what that word meant until five years ago when we got a daughter. You see, I was growing up, and my brother and I were both adopted, and we loved each other so much. We loved each other through our fists. Man, man, we just beat on each other, wrestled. Man, it was great. I mean, not in a bad way, in a good way. We loved each other. But I had no idea how to treat a baby girl. All of a sudden, you get this baby girl, you know, and all of a sudden you're like, man, I have no clue what I'm doing, right? I'm, I'm scared. I'm terrified. What if she likes dolls? I don't like dolls. What happens? And all of a sudden you hold her like, oh, everything's fine. Everything melts inside of you. Here's the reality, guys. Like, once I had a daughter in my life, oh, man, my world changed. There's a softness to me. Oh, guys, I'm 42 years old. My body is in decline, but if you mess with my baby girl, you will mess with me. Because I love my daughter, and there's nothing that I wouldn't do for my daughter. Nothing. And Jesus, in this moment, for her sake and for the entire group, Jairus, the religious elite, and the unknown, unnamed woman who is an outcast, looks and says, you are mine. I don't care your gender. I don't care your past. I don't care your disease. I don't care what your motive. I don't care anything about that. Here's what I know. Your faith has made you well. You are now mine. You're my daughter. How powerful is that in that moment, I love you so much. Oh, by the way, daughter, just in a few chapters later, I'm going to die on a cross for you and for everybody here. That's how much I love you. You're mine. And yet, moment in this moment, Jairus is like, what? Daughter? You call her daughter? This was supposed to be for my daughter. You put her needs, this urgent and inconvenient thing, ahead of the needs of my daughter. My daughter is life or death. She's been dealing with this for 12 years. It can wait 30 minutes. I don't know what Jairus is thinking, but in the middle of this, here's what happens. Verse 35, it says, that while Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some, um, someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Guys, and it's in that moment, you know, I, I don't think that there's probably anger yet. It's probably just shock. All of a sudden, as he's hearing these things for the first time, guys, he believed in healing. Otherwise, he wouldn't have got Jesus in the first place. But yeah, I don't think he believed in life over death healing because none of them did. He's, they said, just let him go now. It doesn't matter. This is a whole new ball game. We're talking about resurrection. That's not a thing. <laughs> but with Jesus, it is. 
<laughs> right? You see, all of his hopes, though, in that moment of her being made well were fading. He had missed the moment on top of that. He wasn't there for the last breath of his daughter, and his regret begins to set in. His belief dies. It's like there's no more. And yet Jesus, in that moment, it says, and overhearing them, he says, do not fear, only believe. Guys, in the Greek, that's the present indicative active. You're like, what does that mean? Here's what I can tell you. It means keep on believing. It says, don't quit. Don't let it die. Keep on believing. Present, continuous. Keep on. Don't give up on me now, Jairus. Don't give up on me now. Keep on believing. And so they go, and they get to the house, and they come full circle. And he looks at the people, and he says, hey, why are you guys weeping? Here's the deal. She's not dead. She's just asleep. And so they mock him. They're like, yeah, of course, you know that. It's a metaphor. She's no longer experiencing human life. That's true, but there's something more to this story. And so Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and he goes into the house with mom and dad. He kicks everybody else out. He says, you guys can't be here for this. He's a disciple maker, though, so he wants Peter, James, and John to see what he's about to do so that they can multiply it. So he brings them into the house, and you got to imagine that in this moment, the dad gets in, and he runs to his daughter's bed. And he gets back in that same position that he was that morning on his knees by her bed with his hands up. But as he grabs her arm, it's beginning to cool. It's not yet cold, but beginning to cool. And through the sobs and all of the tears in his eyes, he can see that though her chest was slowly rising and falling when he had left, it's now perfectly still. His daughter's gone. I see Jesus in that moment coming up and reassuringly putting his hand on the dad's shoulder and coming in and taking the hand of the daughter and saying in Aramaic, Talitha Kumi, which means little daughter, arise. You see a resurrection, life out of death, that's Jesus' wheelhouse. A little girl, as air begins to go into her chest and as her eyes begin to flutter, and as she sits up and sees her dad and all of the tears, she's like, what's wrong? He's like, you were dead. Ah, it's just like I was taking a nap. Praise Jesus. Wraps her in a hug, and she's like, cool, dad, I got to go play games. And she goes and runs off, and Jesus is like, hey, make sure you make, sure you make her some soup. She's going to need it. <laughs> make sure she gets some food. It's, here's what happens is that everyone is amazed. So as we come back to this, right, this is crazy. So we start with this story, this story, urgent and interruption, but they start and they end the same, right? If he just what? Now it says that he would lay his hands on her, but that's another form of what? If he would just touch her. If Jesus would just touch her. But then here's what it says is that immediately she was what? Healed. How incredible is that? Which, by the way, just as a reminder, how old is this girl? Twelve. How long had the woman suffered from her disease? Twelve. You see, you see the connection here? It doesn't matter the gender, it doesn't matter the age, it doesn't matter the issue, it doesn't matter if it's disease or death, it doesn't matter, right? What Mark is doing and what Jesus is doing is he's showing us, I got the whole gambit. I got everything. I can cover any scenario. 
And immediately she is healed. And here's what I love as it goes on to immediately again. The kingdom at work is at hand, right? The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, or the king, and they're blending with the kingdom of earth, and, and all these things are happening. And in the end, here's what happens is that everybody is amazed. Everyone's amazed. I love in the Greek this actually is that they were astonished with great astonishment. And you're like, that's redundant. But that's cool because that's what happened. How amazing is it that this is the way that the story ends? And so when you look at this, as you look at the way this unfolds, right? There's even just the structure in this, but as you begin to experience what Mark is trying to teach us here, is that when it starts with this, it starts with if, and it starts with if. It's a conditional thing that when you look at this, there is a hope. There is a desperation. Gosh, I am at my end. I have got nothing left, but guess where I can go? I can go to Jesus. It's a conditional thing. And so in these conditional things, we acknowledge that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. But in Jesus, there is something, and it's hope, baby. It's hope. That's what we got. Now, when I think about this, at the center of that hope is Jesus. Now, when I think about this story, and as I look at this board, there's a couple of things that come to my mind. Like we acknowledge that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be, but in Jesus there is hope. But when you look at this, like you think about this, that both of them have reached the, the bottom's end. They both have expended everything that they could possibly expend to get to Jesus. Life is full of hope, but we find hope in all the wrong things. Sometimes it takes getting to the very bottom when there's nothing left that Jesus is the most real. You see, Christmas time is a perfect example. We're starting Advent. We're going to Christmas. Where, where do we find hope? We think about all the holes in our lives, and we buy, and we buy, and we buy, and we buy, and Amazon makes a killing. Bezos just gets richer and richer and richer because our hope is misplaced. Because we, because we spend, but we spend it on all the wrong things. But here, and you get to this, because here's what I wonder, how much I want you to realize as we end, guys, desperation there is a reality that there are things in life that desperation is not just in the things that we buy, but sometimes in our circumstances, whether it's in marriage or the loss of a loved one or a dying someone, there are circumstances that bring us to a point of desperation, but the reality is that desperation is a daily thing. It's a daily, daily thing. And so whether you're a religious dad, an outcast person, or a little girl, whether it's disease or death, or anything in between, Jesus has got this. There's hope in Jesus. If desperation is a daily thing, here's what I want you guys to know. The more than you and I, the more we as a church cultivate that reality into our daily theology that every day is built out of desperation, the more we're actually going to long for Jesus to be king and for him to build his kingdom. Because here's the reality, is that the gospel reminds us of the hope that we have in Jesus, of the grace that we have in Jesus, but at the same time, it calls us to follow him more closely. When I think about the woman who's at the center of this story, right, the woman has that choice as she gets in, she touches, and she gets everything that she wants. She can back away and say, 12 years to make up for, I can live life however I want. And sometimes I think in Christian life, we say a prayer at five, and you're like, hey, if you don't trust Jesus, you're going to hell. You're like, I'm in. And yet that becomes the extent. We go to church, jump through the hoops or whatever, and Jesus is like, ah, oh, I don't want, I don't want just that, right? I want all of you. God sent Jesus to die on earth because he couldn't bear to not be a part of your life. 
But here's the reality is that Jesus is not content with just holding a single part of your life. He wants all of you. And we have the choice to either back away like the woman in that tension or do we come close? And do we tell Jesus the whole truth? God, Jesus, here's everything that's going on in my life right now. I maybe have never been lower, but here's the reality. I want you. I love you. I'm so thankful for dying on the cross for me. You can have all of me in return. You see, we can either follow from a distance or we can follow from up close. And so my challenge to you this morning, guys, is this. Don't back away from Jesus. Come closer and tell him the whole truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we wrap up this morning, the reality is that I don't know where, where anybody is in their walk with you this morning. Maybe there's people who've never met you. It's the first time they're hearing something. Maybe there are people in here who have had their, been following from a distance or been looking at Jesus and want to know. Maybe there have been people who have given their life to Christ but, but have kept Jesus at a distance too. I don't know what's going on in our life. I don't know what desperation there is circumstantially. I don't know what we're buying on Amazon and what we're preparing for this Christmas. But Lord, I pray that you would stir inside of us as a church something deeper. That you would make us desperate for Jesus because the, to the degree in which we experience the hope that we so long for is tied to the degree in which we know that we're desperate for Jesus and how much we need him. And so, Lord, this morning as we're about to take communion, Lord, I pray that we would think of that little girl as Jesus extends his hand and grabs it and says, Talitha Kumi, rise, my little daughter. Because as we celebrate communion, we're reminded that there is life over death. We love you. In our name we pray, amen.